City, WLCC, Brandon. Faith Talk Tampa. Online at letstalkfaith.com. Or listen on TuneIn and Odyssey. The following is sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries and is pre-recorded. People who aren't convinced enough to believe in Christ because of what the Bible says won't be convinced because of a miracle as great as even the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. They won't be because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So please don't be concerned about finding Noah's Ark. You know what? If we find it, fine. If we don't, fine. I don't think it's going to have any great impact on unbelievers. I think it might strengthen perhaps the faith of believers, but even then we don't need to find Noah's Ark to believe that it was there. We know it was there. Why? Because we walk by faith in the word of God and not by sight. If I read tomorrow that there was an expedition and they absolutely have Noah's Ark, I'll say, great, I knew it was there all along. interesting to think about the number of expeditions that have set out to search for Noah's Ark. I remember one rather interesting tale from the early 1900s of a Russian soldier who was allegedly inside the Ark and took pictures of it and then mysteriously disappeared along with the photographs. I'm with Pastor Steve on this. If it is ever found, that would no doubt be cool. However, my faith in the narrative of the flood is not dependent on the ark being found. Now, on our last episode, Noah's brave and intrepid family were waiting to set their feet on dry ground. God could have dried the ground immediately, but he allowed everything to proceed along its natural course. In today's lesson, the earth will finally be dry enough for everyone to exit the ark. (laughs) I'm sure Noah and his family were excited about what was coming next. Let's listen to what Pastor Steve has to tell us today. Turn in the New Testament to Luke chapter 16. I just want to nail this down in your own minds and hearts. Because Luke chapter 16 is a great illustration of this. It's the story of another man named Lazarus, not the same one in John 11, and a rich man. The true believer Lazarus went to be with the Lord and the rich man went to be in Hades. Not because he was wealthy, but because he was an unbeliever. And he's in torment in Hades. In fact, it's a sobering thought to think that that man is still in torment in Hades. It's been there for over 2,000 years. Because I don't believe this is a parable. A parable does not use names of people, but names are used here. Luke chapter 16, verse 27. And this man said to Father Abraham, he said, I beg you, Father Abraham, that you send him, send Lazarus to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. So he's saying, look, I'm in torment, it's too late for me, but send Lazarus back so that he might warn my family. Verse 29, but Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. In other words, they don't need a miracle. They have the word of God. Let them hear the word of God. But he said, no, Father Abraham, If someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. What an incredible miracle. Someone rises from the dead. 
But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. You know what Jesus was saying? He was speaking, of course, of his own resurrection, which wasn't far off. What Jesus was saying is this, people who aren't convinced enough to believe in Christ because of what the Bible says won't be convinced because of a miracle as great as even the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. They won't be because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So please don't be concerned about finding Noah's Ark. You know what? If we find it, fine. If we don't, fine. I don't think it's going to have any great impact on unbelievers. I think it might strengthen perhaps the faith of believers, but even then we don't need to find Noah's Ark to believe that it was there. We know it was there. Why? Because we walk by faith in the word of God and not by sight. If I read tomorrow that there was an expedition and they absolutely have Noah's Ark, I'll say, great. I knew it was there all along. You know, probably preserved because of the ice and all of that. So going back to Genesis 8, we know that 150 days after the flood began, Noah's Ark came to a rest on Mount Ararat. And as I said before, it's not actually one mountain. I mean, it's one mountain that it stopped on, but Ararat is really a mountain range. It's a mountain chain that actually extends for hundreds of miles. But even though the ark was now on solid ground, Noah and the occupants on the ark could not disembark. And I'll tell you why. Verse 5. And the water decreased steadily until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains became visible. Between verses 4 and 5 is actually a period of two and a half months. It's 74 days because verse 4 speaks of the seventh month, the 17th day. Verse 5 speaks of the 10th month, the first day. So there were two and a half months in between. So for two and a half months after resting on Mount Ararat, two and a half months later, they could see the tops of the nearby lower mountains. So their ark was on solid ground, but there was water all around them and they couldn't disembark. And it took two and a half months later for them to even begin to see the tops of the lower mountains. They must have been on the high mountain in that mountain range. So they had to wait for the water level to go down. No dry land for them to get out, even though their boat was settled. So they had to wait. And that's what verses 6 through 12 tell us about their waiting. Then it came about at the end of 40 days, verse 6, that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. And he sent out a raven, and it flew here and there until the water was dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove from him to see if the water was abated from the face of the land. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot, so she returned to him into the ark, for the water was on the surface of all the earth. Then he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark to himself. So he waited yet another seven days, and again he sent out the dove from the ark. And the dove came back to him toward evening, and behold, in her beak was a freshly picked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the water was abated from the earth. Then he waited yet another seven days, and he sent out the dove, but she did not return to him again. Forty days later, we learn Noah is still in the ark. Forty days after verse 5 tells us. Noah's still in the ark, and so he opens the window 40 days later, and he sends out a raven to check out the environment. But the raven, I don't know if you realize this, the raven is a scavenger bird. You probably do know that. And it just flew around disgustingly feeding on dead carcass, floating in the water. 
There's a question in the Hebrew about this. Did he go back and forth between the ark and the waterways where the animals were? I think the thought here is that he didn't return to the ark. He just landed on dead animals and fed off of them. Kind of a disgusting picture. Therefore, Noah sent out another bird, a dove. He sent out the dove to see if the ground was dry. And that's very smart of him because a dove naturally inhabits the valleys and not mountaintops. So if the water was down low enough, the dove would go down into the valleys. But we learned that the dove returned. So seven days later, Noah sent the dove out again, and it returned with an olive leaf in its mouth meaning that the trees were beginning to grow again as the waters were decreasing. One week later, the dove was sent out again, and it did not return, meaning that the valleys now were dry enough for her to land. Now, folks, do you realize, and I said this before, but let me put it chronologically, that Noah has spent, at this time, 285 days in the ark, with animals, I might add. I just wanted to add that so you think about it. And according to verses 13 and 14, it was a grand total, as I told you before, of 371 days. That is, with a month being 30 days in a biblical time, that's more than one year giving Noah that time with his family, with the animals, on the waters, over one year since the flood began. He's been in that ark. Let's look at verses 13 and 14. Now, it came about in the 601st year, in the first month, On the first of the month, the water was dried up from the earth. Then Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. If you were to go through the chronology, all the times mentioned here would come out to 371 days. Now, do you think he ever wondered if God had forgotten him? Over a year he's been there, but God remembered Noah. And this is what verse 1 is talking about. God remembered Noah, even though it was a long ordeal for Noah and his family, and it probably seemed like a lifetime to him, God remembered him. Why? And here's the point of all of this. Why did God remember him? Because God keeps his word. What word did God give to Noah that he wasn't going to float endlessly on the sea? Back in chapter 6, verse 18, but I will establish my covenant with you, Noah, I'm going to establish a covenant with you and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. The covenant is that you're going to make it. Not only that, but God had promised in Genesis 3.15 that one of the seeds of the woman would crush the serpent's head, meaning Satan's head. Noah must survive because that seed will come from Noah's line as Abraham will come from Noah's line. God keeps his word. God had promised Noah to save him and to establish his covenant with him. God is faithful. I want to apply this for a moment. I want to encourage everyone who's going through a difficult time, a time that just seems to go on and on and on and never ends. And you wonder, when is it going to end? Will God keep his word to you? God has not forgotten you, regardless of how you feel, regardless of how you feel at this moment. But sometimes we think God is doing something and we get disappointed with God and we get frustrated and we ought to be honest about that. We get frustrated, we get confused, we get disappointed with God because we wonder, what are you doing? And let me tell you one of the reasons why I think we do get frustrated. I think there are two reasons, really. Number one, either we expect him to do what we think he must do 
Not what his word says he'll do, but what we expect him to do. And when he doesn't live up to our expectations, as if we tell God, this is what you must do, then we get confused. We're praying about something. We can't understand why God isn't answering our prayers. Well, he is answering. The answer is no or wait. But I think one reason why we get frustrated and disappointed with God is because we tend to think that we dictate to God what he must do rather than a true submission to what does his word say to us? What promises do we have from his word? There's another reason I think we get frustrated, and it's along these lines, is that we tend to misinterpret scripture by claiming promises that just aren't there for us. And that misinterpretation of scripture leads us to be very confused because we think God has let us down. We think God has not fulfilled his word because we're claiming something that we've misinterpreted. Specifically, what has God told us in his word? What has he promised us as we go through trials? What is it specifically that you can count on, regardless of what you're going through, that God has told you? We turn to the New Testament for this, because there's a lot in the New Testament about this. Number one, we learn from 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that God says his grace is sufficient for you. The story is in 2 Corinthians 12, Beginning in verse 7, Paul says, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. God had given Paul revelation after revelation. And Paul might have been big-headed about this. Paul might have turned from a humble servant to a very proud individual. And he said that to keep me humble... God let Satan inflict me with a messenger from Satan, a thorn in the flesh. What that thorn was, we don't know. It might have been an individual who really bugged Paul. More than likely, it was a physical ailment. It really isn't that important what it is. The important thing is this. It was given to Paul to keep him from exalting himself. Now watch this. The great apostle Paul who walked with the Lord did the thing that just naturally any one of us would do. Any one of us would say, Lord, this is rough. I pray that you'll deliver me from this. I pray that it'll leave me. Three times. Now, Paul didn't get that answer. Well, I guess the answer you could say was no. Because in verse 9, God said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness, Paul says, that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. Listen, what Paul learned is something we need to learn, and that is that whatever you go through, his grace is sufficient. What does that mean? It means that God will strengthen you. He won't necessarily take you out of the trial. He'll strengthen you in the trial because he's teaching you things. He's keeping you from exalting yourself. He wants to humble you. If you're not humble already, if you are humble already, he wants to keep you humble. And that is what you can count on. God will keep his word. Secondly, you can count on this promise. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29 tell us this. These great verses that we've looked at many times, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him. God is causing all things to work together for the believer. That's what it means. All things to work together for good for the believer. How is it good? All things. That means your trial as well. That means the difficulty you're going through. 
That means the heartache that you're enduring. Because in verse 29, he says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. God is using all the difficulties of life to make and shape you and mold you to be more Christ-like. That you can count on. God is keeping his word. He gives you grace to endure the trial. He promises to make you more like Christ. And you know what? There's nothing more important than that to make us more like Christ, to bring more glory to him. Thirdly, he promises to make us more spiritually mature and stable in our Christian lives. James tells us in James chapter 1 how he opens his book. A very unusual way of opening the book. He says in verse 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, you encounter various trials. You're to actually be joyful about it. Now, it's not fun going through it. The joy isn't that you're going through it, but the joy is knowing what it produces. Because James says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. You want perseverance? You want steadfastness? You want to know all of those character qualities where you have to go through trials. And James says in verse 4, and let endurance have its perfect result. Don't fight God on this. Let it have its perfect result that you may be perfect. He means complete, mature, lacking in nothing. You want to be spiritually mature, spiritually stable, then rejoice the trials you're going through because God will use them to make you more mature, more Christ-like, a deeper Christian than you were a week ago. Every day moving you more and more to the goal of Christ-likeness. So God doesn't always spare us distress. I want you to know that. He doesn't always spare us distress. Why? Because he has a purpose for you. In fact, he has several purposes in this. And instead of giving up, and being discouraged, as so many Christians are, you need to recall this, that for 371 days, Noah and his family floated on an endless sea with thousands of animals on board, not knowing what would happen next. But God didn't forget Noah, and he's not going to forget you either. I think that's a great encouragement. He has not forgotten you. He is keeping his word towards you and to you, and he is using these times to mold you and shape you into the kind of person that he wants you to be. And you need to thank God for that. He hasn't forgotten you. So as you wait for the trial to end, and it seems like it's never going to end, and I understand that, what can you do in the meantime? What can you do as you go through a trial? And I want to give you three practical suggestions on what to do as you wait for the trial to end. First of all, stop thinking and worrying about the future and the worst case scenarios. Isn't that what we do as we go through this? We worry about the worst case scenarios. Well, if this continues and this happens, then I'll be bankrupt. If this continues, my family will be a wreck. If this continues, I won't have a job. If this continues, I don't know what's going to happen. Stop worrying. And how do you stop worrying? You don't just say, oh, I'm going to wake up tomorrow and stop worrying. Worry is something you do in your mind. It's what you put into your mind. Therefore, you have to not only stop thinking the wrong thoughts, worrisome, anxious thoughts, but you substitute those thoughts with the right thinking. I'd like you to see this from Philippians chapter 4. You substitute wrong thinking, worrisome thinking, thinking that you have gotten into a habit, a habit in thinking the worst case scenarios. And it is a habit that we cultivate. It's a sinful habit. Christ died for our worries because that's sin. I know it's the respectable sin of the evangelical church. We're not embarrassed by it, 
We might be embarrassed and we should be embarrassed about moral lapses, but we're not embarrassed about worry. Philippians chapter 4, Paul writes in verse 6, be anxious for nothing. That's all inclusive. Be anxious for nothing. Don't worry about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. And here's the result of that. When you stop worrying about anything and you pray about everything, Paul writes, And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. One time when I was preaching on this, a man came up to me and said, Could you explain to me the peace of God? I said, No. Paul said it passes all comprehension. Nobody knows it. How can I explain it to you? You just experience it. But the key that I want you to see is verse 8. We often stop at verses 6 and 7. And if you do that, you're not going to get the whole picture. And you're not going to have total victory. Because verse 8 is the key. Finally, brethren, and he means kind of in conclusion. Let me wrap this up. Let me tell you what you need to do. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute... If there is any excellence and anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. The word at the end, let your mind dwell on these things, the expression means contemplate, meditate, give serious consideration, not passing thoughts. These are the things you need to think about, and primarily talking about truthful things that are worthy of praise. You know, most of us worry about things that will never happen. It's not true. It will never happen. Donald Gray Barnhouse, that great pastor and Bible teacher, was married to a woman who worried endlessly. And one day he bought her a book with just pages in it that weren't written, and he said, for the next six months, write down everything you worry about, and then we'll look at it. After six months was over, they opened the book. Now, one thing that she worried about ever happened. Imagine that. Paul says, think on the things that are true, not the things that might happen, the things that are true. What is true? as opposed to the future. That's what we worry about. You don't know what the future is going to bring. And you've got to stop your mind from thinking on worst-case scenarios, future stuff, and presently, what is true? And of course, the great meditation should be on the truth of the Word of God. It is true that God has not forgotten you. First of all, stop thinking about the future and worst-case scenarios as you go through the trial. Secondly, learn to be content in all your circumstances. We just keep our place in Philippians 4. Because in Philippians 4, Paul goes on to speak about contentment. I want to show you something that I think is just so helpful. Verse 10, he says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Now let me just stop here for a moment and explain what was going on. Paul was in prison when he wrote this. He was in bad circumstances. He was in prison in Rome under house arrest at this point. He's been there for several years, and the Philippians loved him, and they wanted to meet his needs. Imagine having a missionary that you promised to support, but you haven't supported him for years. That's what was going on here. They loved the Apostle Paul, but they either didn't know where he was or couldn't get a gift to him. But now they've located him, and they send him a love offering. What a precious thing to do. Paul might have been cold in that house. He might have had needs for certain articles that would be helpful for him toiletries, things of that nature, and they sent him a gift. And Paul is very grateful, but he says in verse 11, not that I speak from one, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in. He said, I appreciate it, but I don't want you to think that I have to have your money, because I have learned to be content whether I have or have not. And that's what he says in verse 12. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. 
in any and every circumstance, I have, watch this, I have learned the secret. There's a secret to this. The secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Paul says he has learned the secret of being filled and going hungry. Would you like to know that secret? Oh my, but that's a strange place to stop our program. It's almost as if someone was trying to pique your curiosity so that you would come back for our next verse-by-verse program. Who would do such a thing? (laughs) Well, let me ask you this. Would you consider yourself to be content in your circumstances? It's easy to be content when life is smooth and easy. When Paul wrote to the Philippians, he said he had learned to be content in his circumstances, and he was writing from prison. Honestly, I don't think I have Paul's level of contentment. By the way, if you happen to have missed any of our past sessions, you can go back and listen to those sessions that you've missed. Surf over to versebyverseradio.org and click on the Archives tab. You can also subscribe to our podcast there so that you can listen whenever it is convenient. That's all available at versebyverseradio.org. Pastor Steve will be back with us on our next verse-by-verse broadcast when, among other things, he will give us Paul's secret to contentment. Contentment.